Welcome to Further Reading, Craft, Creativity, and the Writing Life, a podcast from the University of King's College MFA program. I'm your host, Jillian Turnbull. On today's show, we talk to Charlotte Gray. Charlotte is a prolific Canadian nonfiction author with 11 books to her name and a background in magazine editing, newspaper writing, and political commentary. Educated at Oxford University and the London School of Economics, she has, since moving to Canada, turned her attention to some of the country's most influential thinkers and activists, producing biographies so packed full of information, I'm guessing she either never sleeps or has a full-time team of researchers. Charlotte's writing has earned her much in the way of accolades and awards, including the Toronto Book Award and the Pierre Burton Award, alongside several honorary doctorates from universities across Canada. She is an adjunct research professor in the Department of History at Carleton University, and her latest book, Murdered Bidas, A Millionaire, His Gold Mine, and A Strange Death on an Island Paradise, about mine owner Sir Harry Oakes, is the recipient of the 2020 Arthur Ellis Award for Best Nonfiction Book. Today, Charlotte joins us on further reading to discuss writing craft, historical nonfiction, and the long process of mining all that research for the perfect story. Welcome, Charlotte. Great to be here. It's great to have you. As I was saying, as we were getting ready, we love you at King's. You've been a, a regular figure there, helping many, many students through the process of writing a book. So it's lovely to talk to you in this setting. Well, it's just such a great program. I was thrilled when I first heard that there was going to be a good nonfiction program for writers because I think it's an important genre and there's very few opportunities for writers to learn some of the craft. Mm-hmm, exactly. And and it's uh, so far produced many, many writers and, and many great books uh, with some of your advice guiding us along the way. So I really am curious to talk to you about something that's a, a kind of common question for authors getting started in this genre, which is, you know, how do you approach a huge topic and then kind of distill it down into book form? And and so maybe we'll go into some of the uh, the processes and, and procedures that you go through. But maybe you can just give us a little bit of background on your career and talk about how you became a writer. How did you decide to make that your life? Well, one of the things I've learned as a biographer is that um, when you're looking back on a life, you can make it all sound like a completely logical progression. But <laughs> for the subject of the life, usually... It's, you know, the future is unknowable and there's an awful lot of sort of luck and happenstance involved. I mean, I started, you mentioned that I, at university, I studied history and at Oxford, we, when we studied history, we started at 1066 with British history and went through to 1939. That was the modern history course, which always makes Hmm. Canadians laugh. So I started off with a sort of historical frame of mind, you know, that believing that if you were going to understand today, you had to know some of what happened yesterday and uh, that history played a very important role in the construction of our contemporary world. I went from there. In fact, I did historical research in the British Foreign Office, then jumped ship to Fleet Street, worked on the Daily Express, and then started editing magazines in London. But I have to admit, you know, that it was sort of really what came up, what opportunities came up. It wasn't so much a planned career path at all. And then I decided to move to Canada to join my Canadian boyfriend and ended up in 
Ottawa, which I discovered after I'd moved here, is not a uh, natural habitat for writers. If in this country mm. you want to be near the publishing industry, you uh, you d- would do better to go to Toronto. But the one advantage Ottawa had uh, for a magazine writer, which I saw myself as then, was that it was the political capital. And so I immediately, on the basis of absolutely no knowledge at all, started writing about Canadian politics and did that with great enjoyment (laughs) and uh, for 10 years and realized, you know, that I was incredibly fortunate being in a city where I met people from all across the country and uh, really began to understand the complexity of this country. But I also realized, um, you know, my history training came to the fore. And the more I wrote, the more I realized I hardly knew a thing. And to understand how a bunch of British colonies in the 1860s came to form a federation and uh, eventually evolve into Canada, I really needed to learn some history. And one of the greatest ways of learning anything is by writing. And so I started writing books. Wow. So so <laughs> that's quite the, um, you know, project to take on, uh, you know, to decide to write a book. Was there something particularly inspirational that got you going on your first book, like a, a sort of moment you had? I think two things. I mean, first of all, I had a marvelous mentor, a woman called Sandra Gwynne married to um, the Toronto Star columnist Richard Gwynne, who died recently. And she had jumped from being a magazine editor to being a social historian. And I was really sort of following her lead. And then the other thing that happened was, once you have a byline as a magazine or a newspaper writer, uh, book editors know that you have a track record. They know that you know that you can produce a deadline, that you can string a sentence and a paragraph together, and it's much easier. You're, you're going to be a much more reliable bet than an author who's never had anything published. So I have to admit, the first book I wrote, Mrs. King, which was about uh, the mother of William Lyon Mackenzie King, that book was actually commissioned by Meg Masters at Penguin Books. She came to me and she said, would you like to do this? And it was just at a point when I was getting a little bored with what I'd been doing up till then. And I said, yes, I'd love to, and threw myself into it once again, really not knowing what I was doing. Hmm. That's such an important thing you bring up there that, you know, just having that track record can make a huge difference and, and makes you very visible to editors and, you know, I think that still happens, even though we often think the publishing industry has changed a lot and the opportunities are fewer and, you know, there's so much kind of noise to cut through. It's nice to hear that that was your pathway and, and it's still something that can happen. I always advise anybody who says to me, you know, if they're sort of fairly young, they're a student at school or university, I always have two bits of advice for them. Uh, if they say they want to be a writer and they want to write books. The first is to read everything. The best way to become a writer is to read what other people have written and see what genres you like and what you're really enjoying and to stretch your own sort of um, knowledge of the craft. The second thing is just try and get pieces published, pieces in local newspapers, pieces in magazines. Don't sort of start off saying... I've decided to be a writer and I'm going to write 
a biography of Justin Trudeau. <laughs> that is too big a mountain to climb. Start by just sort of sharpening your skills on smaller projects and build up. Because once you've had a, a once you have some clippings to show a publisher, they'll believe they'll share your belief that you're a writer. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it also gets you in the process of, you know, having to meet deadlines and having to work with editors and just kind of be in the professional sort of stance of a writer, right? Yes, and it gets you used to something which every writer, myself included, has to get used to, which is rejection. It doesn't always work out, and even if you do manage to persuade someone to publish you, uh you also have to then see, listen to the editor's feedback. I mean, when you're a new and rather vulnerable writer, when the piece comes back to you and it's just covered in, uh, well, now it's track changes, you know, it's deeply wounding. You thought your prose was perfect. <laughs> but actually, as the more you write, first of all, your prose improves. Secondly, the more grateful you are to good editors who save you from some of your worst faults. <laughs> yeah, and it can turn into a great relationship too, where you're both kind of um, developing each other's skills. That's right. I mean, I've been very fortunate. I've always had marvelous editors from that first one, my relationship with Meg Masters on my first book, to my closest relationship is with this legendary uh, editor, publisher in Toronto, Phyllis Bruce, who was with HarperCollins. And then I followed her from HarperCollins to Simon & Schuster. Yeah, it's a relationship like no other. So when you are thinking about a new idea and you want to take it to your editor or um, uh, agent or, or sort of go through the, the standard process, how does that work for you? Do, you? do you keep a book of ideas and then keep returning to one again and again? Does something just kind of stick with you for ages? Do you do a bunch of research? So how does the process work? Well, I'm sort of a pretty omnivorous idea gatherer. I mean, some of my books have been suggested, the subjects have been actually suggested to me by Phyllis, my editor. Other times people have suggested an idea to me. Sometimes a character in one book fascinates me and I decide to follow them up in the next one. Often I think I, I sort of look around and think, what am I interested in? And then when I found somebody I'm interested in, I um, sort of try and sell the idea to the publisher. But one of the things that happens to anybody who's a biographer is that people write out of the blue and say, you know who you should write a biography of? You should write a biography of my grandfather. And my grandfather, he may have been famous or not, but most people perhaps don't always realize that it's no good just saying, oh, he's really interesting. You actually have to have some materials, really good materials. So when those kind of emails or inquiries arrive on my desk, my first question is, so what kind of papers are there? Diaries, letters? To get inside that character, to write a biography that's more than just tombstone data, um, I'm going to have to get inside the way his or her mind works and uh, understand this person better. And if there aren't any really good personal papers, then you're looking for a fiction writer. You're not looking for a biographer like me. So what constitutes personal papers in that case? Are you looking for diaries or letters or something beyond that? Well, all of the above, really. I mean, I 
told you, I plunged into my first book, Mrs. King, just because I thought, yes, I want to write social history like my great mentor, Sandra Gwynne, without actually having at that point checked, this is something I'd never do now, what kind of papers there were available. But luckily, William Lyon Mackenzie King was a complete pack rat. Hmm. And in the National Archives in Ottawa, where I live, there was incredible microfilm of King family correspondence and photographs and diaries. Of course, Mackenzie King's own diary, which is transcribed. It's now actually, you can just uh, find a digital version on the internet. I'll never forget one day I was in the archives and I asked for any photographs that were in the King papers. And the archivist smiled at me and said, are you really sure you want to see all the photographs available? And I said, sure, not knowing what was going on. And I found that the archivist then disappeared and arrived back with three huge trolleys laden with photographs, (laughs) half of them unmarked, you know, extraordinary sort of Victorian carte de visite of uh, mysterious looking women uh, (laughs) with no indication of whether it was a great aunt or a cousin or a musical star. Wow, that's amazing. Did you end up you know, uh, cataloging some of them and figuring out who they were or just say, no, no, thanks. I went through them all. I mean, I love doing that kind of thing. I mean, just sort of looking at them. I mean, there were a lot of photographs I didn't have to look at, which were sort of endless photographs of Prime Minister King at Commonwealth conferences with a lot of other stuffy white men in suits. But the the early ones, the family photos and the uh, um, photos of relatives, I could, I just built a whole world out of the uh, faces I was looking at. Wow. Do you have like a, a moment of, of finding something in, in an archive or, or perhaps just in the regular course of your research that really stands out as a real surprise that turned a whole project around or, or got you going in a new direction? I think often what happens, I mean, I'm pretty metho- methodical and, um, you know, I sit down and I start going through the papers in a um, collection and I follow the classic Robert Caro advice, Robert Caro, the great biographer of uh, President Johnson of the United States. And Robert Caro says, always turn the page. And so, you know, you just sit there going through taking copious notes or actually more likely what I do is do photocopies or photos now on my iPhone. And so I I pick out everything that I think is important. I don't take everything. I mean, it, that would just be too huge a sort of collection of paper to accumulate. I select at that stage. But often what I do find is that I'm sort of systematically going through everything and deciding um, sort of what's important and what I can construct a narrative out of. And then I discover as I'm thinking about it while I'm walking my dog or coming back from the archives, there's some little quirky detail that bothers me and that sort of sticks in my brain. Sometimes something that I didn't note when I was being so systematic. A classic in is that when I was um, writing The Massey Murder about a young woman shooting her employer in Toronto in 1913, and she was then uh, put in the Don Valley Jail, and there was a, a incident where two doctors, I read about this actually, it was on microfilmed newspapers, two doctors went into the jail and examined her. And then they announced at the trial that she was a virgin. And this was very important at the time, because uh, at that stage, you know, women were divided into um, 
angels and fallen women. And if they could prove that she was an angel because she was intact, then uh, she'd have a better chance of being found non, not guilty. And I realized, you know, that the defense was doing a marvelous job of uh, building this picture of the little Carrie, the domestic servant, as being very innocent. Then I thought, well, what did that actually involve that they could prove that she was a virgin? She was so guileless, so innocent, little British immigrant. And they must have physically examined her in this filthy jail. Did she know what was happening? I mean, it was so shocking to me when I suddenly realized what had happened to her. And that was just an illuminating moment, which nobody else had picked up because it was just so easy to read it in the newspapers and then repeat the evidence that had uh, appeared in court without thinking, how did, how did they actually get it? And it effectively silenced her, right? I mean, well, the whole the whole trial did, of course. But I mean, how how and why would people have ever thought to ask her about that? Well, even even if she had protested her own innocence, she probably wouldn't have been believed because she shot her employer. And that was such a deeply shocking thing to have happened that people would have been more than content to uh, believe that um, it was a sort of deliberate murder right. rather than the frightened response of a girl who was scared because her, her employer had uh, harassed her. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can we just hang out in that book for a minute? Because I, I remember when I read it, it was several years ago now, I was really struck by the description of the street on which the murder occurred, which, if I'm remembering correctly, was in the annex just kind of south of DuPont in That's Toronto, right. right? Yeah. And at the time, you know, the streets weren't paved and there was no subway there and, and sort of all the modern you know, adjustments and, and changes that it's gone through were, were present. And yet there was something so evocative about how you described that street and especially, you know, that kind of winter night when it had gotten dark early and, you know, people were making their way home from work. And I just, I, because I used to live right there, I thought this is exactly my experience of this area <laughs> and this street. And I was so struck by your ability to capture it perfectly which, of course, is, you know, a bit of a like my mapping my own experience of the street onto reading the book, naturally. But for you to take us into that moment so vividly, how do you go about constructing a scene like that? And, of course, the, it's the crux of the book, right? Yeah, I love doing that stuff. And that's what really creative nonfiction is, because I wasn't on that street when Carrie shot Bert Massey, but I've been on the same street um, on a February night as dusk is falling. And I, you know, sort of very carefully note every the response of every sense I have, sight, sound, smell, to just the dimming light. That's why it's so important when you're writing the kind of nonfiction I'm writing to always, always visit the sights, to never sort of just imagine or even not even bother with the physical details of what a house looks like or what a kitchen smells like. These are the kind of details that really build an authentic picture. Yeah. So, I mean, on the one hand, it's easy to go to the street and say, see the structures, the buildings that were there 100 years ago. But it's not so easy to find out what a kitchen smelled like a hundred years ago. I actually just heard yesterday that there's a, a kind of project happening right now to archive 
smells and to give people a sense of how things smelled in the past through a kind of exhibit-like presentation of them. But that's a much harder task you're facing. So how do you approach that? Well, it is and it isn't. Actually, I read about that uh, uh, European project to track smells from the Middle Ages onwards. I thought it was brilliant. It was absolutely yeah. marvelous. Um, but, you know, I mean, I know, for example, that the streets of Toronto or New York in the late 19th century would have smelt overwhelmingly of horse dung mm. because most of the uh, vehicles were pulled by horses. And not just that, but I read the fascinating academic article about the horse dung attracted enormous quantities of house flies, which particularly in the summer were a real pest for pedestrians. But the smells, we're almost unaware of the smell of gasoline fumes right now if we live in a city. But uh, the smell of horse dung was just as prevalent uh, 120 years ago. Uh, similarly, you know, in a busy kitchen, there are always the smells of baking <laughs> and bacon frying. And 150 years ago, the wood smoke. I know from my own experience of having a very old-fashioned summer cottage that um, your clothes in the spring and the fall, they stink of wood smoke all the time that comes from the open fires. So you open your senses to the kind of smells and sights that uh, would have been true for your subjects as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a wonderfully creative moment in writing to be able to kind of go down that path and think more about that feeling of your senses rather than, you know, making sure every fact is lined up in order and, and um, properly cited and all that. It's, you know, these are the moments that make creative nonfiction fun, right? And make it creative. Yes. And, and, and we'll bring the reader in and sort mm -hmm. of, as you say, you know, you could map your own experience onto my description of uh, a Toronto street at dusk. Um, similarly, as soon as, uh, you know, you start talking, now this is just hypothetical, you know, about sort of walking downstairs and smelling the aroma of coffee for any coffee drinker, um, that first whiff of coffee in the morning is, you're in there, you're on that page as soon as it's mentioned. Yeah, and smell perhaps does that so much more than other senses. Okay, so you have an idea for a book and you've taken it to your editor and you're perhaps in the process of kind of fleshing out a proposal or a, or a, a structure for the book. How do you approach the kinds of subjects you write about in terms of a contemporary audience and how do you think about our way into those subjects and the ways you're going to make connections for us as readers? I tend, in fact, to just follow my instincts. You know, a particular story interests me. I want to be able to write it in a way that will interest contemporary readers. Sometimes the story in itself is just a natural for one's own times. The story of Carrie Davis, who shot her employer. It was We were just on the cusp of Me Too and mm -hmm. the whole issue of harassment of vulnerable young women by powerful men was sort of in the zeitgeist. And it was obviously one that people would relate to and sort of see in the contemporary perspective. But other times I 
wrote a biography of Alexander Graham Bell. I wrote that because, in fact, I'd been to Cape Breton and I'd been to Bedeck and seen um, the Alex- Alexander Graham Bell historic site there and been absolutely fascinated by his wife uh, and the relationship between Bell and Mabel. Mabel, who was deaf and therefore could never use her husband's greatest invention. And I think that obviously I could make analogies between the invention of the telephone and what was happening in terms of digital revolution and the computer revolution of our own day. But I just loved writing that book and wanted to transfer to readers my own fascination with this very eccentric inventor and this marvelous relationship he had with a a very brainy, brave, hearing-impaired woman. Yeah, I guess when you you really think about it, a good story is a good story. When it happens is irrelevant. Um, That's right. Yeah, like sort of forcing that connection is is almost pointless. It's a very, um, I mean, publishers more and more do ask, why this book, why now? Mm-hmm. You know, a, a good story is not necessarily enough. It's got to have some kind of contemporary resonance. And frankly, you can usually dredge something up. But <laughs> the most important thing is that it's a story that you want to write. And it may be that the contemporary resonance it has is what's turned you onto it in the first place. But, you know, if you're just doing it purely because it's going to sort of hit the public consciousness at that point, then it becomes a bit formulaic. Yes, exactly. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this in relation to um, your Midas book. Uh, You know, I I was just reading it recently and I was thinking, this is interesting that we have this fascinating story about essentially a very rich white man who came over as a settler and extracted resources from the land in order to build his fortune. That's not necessarily, there's not necessarily a public appetite for a story about someone like that. And yet all the things that you're pulling in in his world, especially around, you know, the gap between the wealthy and the poor, um, tax havens and the kind of escape they provide the ultra rich. I mean, these are very contemporary subjects that we're talking about constantly. So it's interesting the way that you managed to kind of, you know, I mean, you're obviously addressing it directly, but it's, it's also just kind of floating in the background of everything you're talking about and is available to the reader if they want to read it through that lens. It's always interesting, actually, um, seeing what readers come away with from a book, often interpretations which had completely escaped me, interpretations of character or relationships, or sections, paragraphs in the book, which I hadn't thought were particularly important, but have obviously meant an enormous amount to them. I've done two true crime books, I won't do another one, actually, because I think I've sort of exhausted that genre but I, for, for my own purposes. But uh, the reason that I did, first of all, the Massey murder and then murdered Midas is that I love writing social history. I love sort of bringing to life the past and introducing Canadians to some of the extraordinary stories in the past and to a sense of, you know, how this country came to be what it is today. And I was very conscious that history, interest in history had dwindled extremely rapidly in the last uh, 15 years. When I started writing, history was quite hot and CBC had its great um, national history series on its television, Canada, a people's history. You know, then there was uh, Who is the Greatest Canadian? 
But then suddenly interest fizzled out. And particularly, I think, because Canada was changing so dramatically, demographically, and we were becoming very quickly a much more diverse population. And it was hard to interest people who were first or second generation Canadians in a bunch of white men who uh, founded the country in what might as well be the dark ages for most people. But then I thought, well, what do people like reading? And that's when I decided a true crime frame could become a really good vehicle for social history. And I did those two true crime books, which I enjoy doing because I enjoy reading true crime. It's a great midnight read. But I found that I haven't really found another story I want to put in that frame. But it did show me how to use material in a different way to achieve the same end, which is to engage readers in Canadian history. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective. And then, of course, that has paralleled this kind of broader public appetite for true crime in in all forms. So, you know, it just it seemed to meet people where they're at in terms of their general uh, cultural consumption. Yes. So that, you know, when you say, well, why write a book about a sort of grumpy old white man at a time when (laughs) grumpy old white men are definitely uh, not... uh, doing well in public (laughs) opinion. Um, It wasn't so much the grumpy old white man himself. It was actually um, the fact that an unsolved mystery is always going to engage a reader. Oh, exactly. Yeah, there's kind of nothing more exciting, especially when it is, you know, true. Would you have limits on when you would, like sort of how far back or forward you would go in history in terms of the subjects you pick? Not consciously, actually. My friends always say, stop messing around in the 19th century. Can't you come a little bit towards the present day? And of course, (laughs) when I was writing about politics, as I was for the first stretch, I was definitely writing about living people. I did a lot of profiles in magazines like Chatelaine and Saturday Night Magazine, writing about contemporary politicians, which I enjoyed enormously. So I don't don't put any um, great restrictions on the subjects I choose. Although, as I'm constantly saying, I really prefer writing about dead people because they can't sue. (laughs) Yeah, I think I need to adopt that (laughs) approach for a little while. It makes things a little easier. (laughs) Yeah, it does make it easier. I mean, I've been sued. Have you? No, no, but I've certainly been worried in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so just on that note, um, obviously, that's one potential roadblock. And are there others that uh, sort of come up repeatedly for you? Is there like a kind of common set of difficulties you encounter in writing your books? Usually it's shortage of materials. Hmm. Um, I was actually talking to a friend the other day about the fact that rather related to what we were talking about earlier, the history that has been written for Canadians has up to now been pretty white. And, you know, we're now beginning to realize the importance of incorporating more voices into um, our sense of the past and doing it in different ways. And, you know, really tracing the, uh, the growing diversity of our population and looking at groups that have been here. Well, first of all, indigenous groups obviously have been here forever, but also um, there have been black Canadians since the early 19th century, if not before, and uh, Chinese Canadians for um, since the mid-19th century, a very vibrant strain in every province, particularly out west. 
And I really admired a book by a writer for the Globe and Mail, who's herself Chinese-Canadian, who did a marvelous book about Chinese restaurants across Canada, which took in a lot of the history of how those every little town across North America actually got its own Chinese restaurant and how where all those different people came from, which was a really original approach, I thought, and very informative. But I find that, you know, for so many of these early groups, people coming to Canada, whether it was from Britain or Germany or China or Southern or the United States, they were very, very poor. They didn't have the leisure to write letters and diaries, and they didn't keep their papers. So for a non-fiction writer, it's really hard. There aren't many sources to rely on. Mm. So how do you get past a roadblock like that? What do you do? Well, you take an approach like uh, the writer I just mentioned did and sort of come at it another way through um, the cuisine they bought with them and then collecting the family stories you can't focus on one individual because there's never enough material about one individual, but you can sort of accumulate a tapestry of experiences. It's hard sometimes to keep up the narrative momentum if you're going from one individual to another, but it's certainly possible. But also then one has to ask, who has the right to tell those stories? I'm not sure that I'm the right person to, uh, to be writing about somebody from another group. I'm very happy writing about Susanna Moody, who came from England um, 150 year, years before I did. Uh, we both ended up in Upper Canada. But I would feel very self-conscious about taking on history of somebody from a culture with which I wasn't familiar. Hmm. So have you encountered that kind of situation before where you're writing about someone whose history has largely been not part of the dominant narrative or somebody who demographically hasn't had, you know, kind of a forward voice or a, a dominant voice? And if so, how do you deal with that internal power dynamic? Um, the closest I've come probably was in my book, The Promise of Canada, where I tried to tell the story of the evolution of this country since Confederation, since 1867, through the stories of nine individuals. And most of them uh, obviously, because I was covering 150 years, about 120 of which had been dominated by European immigrants or settlers. Most of them, I was sort of comfortably within my own culturally spa cultural space. But then I obviously wanted to include somebody who was indigenous. And I wrote about Elijah Harper, who was a Cree politician who had a tremendous impact in the 1980s on Canadian federal politics then. And I felt very diffident in some ways writing about him because I realized that he'd been in residential school. He'd been very damaged by it. He wasn't a particularly flamboyant, assertive or charismatic man, but he was a sort of dogged politician who knew what he thought was right and who knew what he thought was wrong, and particularly in the way that Brian Mulroney, was, the prime minister then, was handling constitutional negotiations. He was so dismissed at the time by the political elite in Canada, in, in Ottawa. They were very sort of condescending towards him and trying to get away from that attitude, which was very well documented, and trying to get into his actions and his mind, which were not well documented, uh, was a challenge. Yeah, it's interesting because just inherently as authors, we have the power of of our pen 
and and the ability to tell someone's story. So it can be a very daunting um, situation to face. Yes, and I I'm confident I I did it okay. I remember going to see his um, widow, and she read what I'd written and was comfortable with it. And she helped me sort of see my way through explaining some of his actions. But nonetheless, I didn't want to look presumptuous. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, you're very quickly accused of voice appropriation if you um, go plunging in saying what people think. Of course, I mean it's it's nice to have the uh, the connection to people's if they're if they're no longer living, as is often the case with you, to people's descendants and and to be able to talk to them and develop relationships with them. That does help for sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. If they'll talk to you, I mean. With uh, Harry Oakes, the story of Harry Oakes, which is the story in Murdered Midas, the murdered man who whose murder was never solved, uh, the descendants wouldn't talk to me. None of them. No. Since then, I've heard from a couple, but it's all it's been a little frustrating. You know, in each case, I've said, "Please, can I come and talk to you?" And then I got a very polite turned down from a very elderly gentleman who has since died, who was Harry Oakes's grandson. Um, but I know that members of the family have read the book and they've been in contact. And, you know, in each case I've said, please, can I send you a copy of the book, which I, they've said, yes, go ahead. But um, they haven't come back to me at all. Wow, that's, yeah. I mean, I always find that a, an interesting position to be in as an author because sometimes you think, well, maybe they just didn't read the book, <laughs> right? Um, but then if they did and they still don't want to talk with you or they don't sort of reach out... It- yeah, like you're almost sort of suspended there, kind of wondering what the response was. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I did learn when I was writing magazine stories is never assume that somebody won't read something. Somebody's always said to them, did you read that piece by Charlotte Gray? And, or did you read that book? And they may not have read it, but they will certainly know about it. So when you approach your research then and you know we've already talked a bit about the the roadblocks but I'm I'm just curious about the kind of start to finish picture of your research you've got the idea you've got the the kind of structure of the book planned so what are your next steps and and when you're collecting research and you've got this sort of mountain sitting on your desk at home how do you then start to think about distilling it down and getting those nuggets and kind of showing us the tip of the iceberg while the rest is is sort of sitting beneath the surface. Well, the first thing is that as a nonfiction writer, I'm not going to actually start writing the book until I've got a contract, which is a completely different way that a fiction writer approaches uh, getting a contract from a publisher. My route is always that I talk to my agent and my editor, say, do you think this will work? They say, well, why don't you just sort of go ahead and try and put a proposal together? I do some research, but it's very sort of secondary sources, seeing what's out there, what's the general shape of the story kind of research. What will I have to look at in more depth? I write a structure for the book, chapter by chapter, um, sort of 20 chapters of 5,000 words each, outlines. So the outlines can be just two or three sentences. So I've got the whole shape of the book, and then I do a page of synopsis, and then maybe some other material, sort of suggested readership. I, my agent takes that to my publisher, and so far she's always said, yes, go ahead. And we, my agent then negotiates a contract, and meanwhile I start plunging in in much more depth. 
I never do all the research and then start writing because uh, that would just be overwhelming because research always fills all the time available. And then the idea of writing 100,000 words sort of within the last six months of my contract would just sort of suffocate me with uh, dread and uh, hysteria. (laughs) So I research and write sort of in parallel. I sort of going one chapter at a time, often for logistical reasons, while I'm, you know, if I'm traveling to visit archives in Washington or Cape Breton or wherever, I'll um, go far beyond the chapter I'm actually working on because I can't make take that many trips. So I'll be doing research for f- future chapters. But generally, I'm pretty systematic. I'd go through a draft of the whole book, chapter by chapter, doing the research for each chapter as I'm going along. The usually, you know, the first draft I just think this is the worst book I've ever written. This is dreadful. I hate it. And then take a deep breath and go back to the beginning and start rewriting, usually thinking, oh, this isn't so bad after all. I was, uh, you know, I did know what I was doing. But I have deadlines, and so I sort of work backwards once I've got the deadline to sort of when I should be where uh, in the process of writing the book. And then when I feel I'm ready, I send the book to the publisher and wait with a sick feeling in my stomach to see what my editor thinks. Oh my, I, I assume it's it's generally been well received, yes? Or do they send you back for lots of work? Oh yes, it has, but mm-hmm. oh, it depends on the book, but generally, generally, mm-hmm. you know, I, I do know what I'm doing by now. And so it's a joy to sort of read my editor's comments and suggestions and further questions and encouragement. The best editors are very encouraging. They pick out the best bits before they say, now there's just one or two things. And then you actually get the manuscript and it's got little yellow stickies all over it saying, what is this and what do you mean and how do you know this? Right. So do you have like a, a sort of physical way of laying out your materials? Let's say you're working on one chapter, you're sort of gathering things together. Do you, you know, sort of take over a table space? Do you put maps on the wall? I would love to use, I know there's a very good uh, computer program that a lot of people use. I can't remember the name of it. And I keep looking at it thinking, I'm just about to start a new book. I wonder if I can do this. But I, you know, I'm very old fashioned. I have a lot of paper and pencil notes. I have one file folder per chapter. My study floor gets messier and messier. Mm. You know, I have boxes of research materials at the end of my desk. It's not a tidy process. (laughs) I rely a lot on yellow stickies and yellow highlighters and photocopies. I tend to print out stuff I need so that I can find it very easily. Mm-hmm. There's something I think that's very valuable about the physical moving around of materials that helps sort it out in your in your mind. And yes. trying, assuming the process would be neat and tidy, I think really doesn't understand the process of writing a book and corralling all these characters and scenes, right? Whether you're sort of an incredibly rigorous academic or whether you're somebody like me who's going to be doing original research and putting endnotes in the book, but nonetheless relying a lot on intuition and color writing. Both types of history writing are subjective. There's no such thing as objective history. There's always going to be selection of facts. There's always going to be 
um, sort of imposing the story on the inchoate mass of um, facts you've managed to collect. So having all that material to hand and being able to quickly glance at uh, exactly the quote I wanted to use, because I rely a lot on primary materials to justify my sort of choice of the stories. I try and sort of see what the individual was sort of thinking and choosing for themselves. Um, it's just important. It's near at hand. Mm-hmm. I Do you mind if I read you just a little segment of Murdered Midas? Because I'm curious Not at all. how you came about writing this and, of course, many other segments that really popped out for me. Um, This is early in the book, and it's when Harry is just kind of prospecting. He's out in northern Ontario, and he's trying to find this magic spot that that he's been searching for for years and can finally mine for his fortune. So it says, in practice, claims were rarely so neat. Prospectors fought their way through undergrowth and thickets of wild raspberry bushes, waded through swamps, and ducked overhanging branches as they paced out their claims. When your face was furred with mosquitoes and your boots were squelching through mud, it could be hard to keep walking in a straight line. But Harry Oaks would grit his teeth, lower his head, and shoulder his way through the tangle of bushes. So, first of all, here we have this glorious description of the environment is very vivid and, and very tangible in, in so many ways is kind of tapping into all of our senses. But you're surmising how Harry would have dealt with this environment just in that last little sentence. How do you come to writing a paragraph like that? How much research goes into it? How much are you actually conducting your own kind of field work? And then how do you pull it all together for us to just get that lovely little snippet? I think probably I had sort of three or four sources for that picture of Harry bulldozing his way through the bush. The first was, of course, that I went up to Kirkland Lake myself and walked around a lot. And it's hard, you know, when you're on sort of bumpy, uneven territory and it's thick bush to actually, you know, you're sort of dodging to avoid a particular small spruce tree or a bit of squelchy land. And I realized how difficult it was, and it was always difficult. So there's that first-hand impression. Then, of course, there is the memoirs of other prospectors, and they describe what it was like. And there I do often borrow their experiences and just sort of give Harry their experiences, because they were obviously universal for uh, men, and they were pretty well all men who were thrashing around in the bush at that stage, you know, the, the whole business about being your face furred with mosquitoes. I think that came from somebody else's description of what their life was like. And then talking to some of the old timers up there, uh, one of the most wonderful insights I had was um, talking to an old guy up there in McDonald's, no, in Tim Hortons at Kirkland Lake. He kept brushing his face like a sort of nervous tick. And I realized it was because he was used to brushing flies off his face, which is what these guys in the bush always had to be doing. So you put together those physical experiences, which were ones I was confident Harry would have shared. And then I also found in the Museum of Northern History in Kirkland Lake, a lot of uh, transcribed oral histories from old timers who died actually probably sort of in the 19. 70s, 80s, 90s, but a local historian had collected them all. And they described Harry and, you know, his his determination, his humorlessness, 
his stubbornness and the way he would just sort of keep plowing on. So for a description like that, which is very important to my style of writing, but for me to feel that it's absolutely authentic, I'm relying on my sort of personal antennae on previous written sources and on anecdotal evidence from uh, people I speak to in the in the place. Hmm. I I just love that, and there's so many examples of that through well through all of your books, of course, and th- and through this one, just you know these moments where you kind of land and you think this might have taken her two weeks to <laughs> to research, you know, just this little snippet of a streetscape or, you know, the way his body reacted to having been in the bush for so long, you know, the cuts on his hands and the mottled skin on his face. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's, uh, to me, that is the beauty of your books that you kind of land at these spots and realize how much of the iceberg we're not actually seeing. We're just seeing this beautiful peak of, of all the work that you've done. Well, it's always annoying. You spend, you know, sort of hours writing on the basis of sort of all the observations you've got in your notebooks and then you send your chap that chapter off to the publisher and uh, she says I think we could cut a bit here oh I think this is just there's just a little bit too much going on here (laughs) kill your darlings (laughs) yeah exactly yeah so do you have a new project you're working on now I do it's something quite new for me in that it's not Canadian, but it's not new in the sense that it's. I've always enjoyed writing about women. My wonderful editor, Phyllis Bruce, came to me and said, you know, there were two women born in Manhattan in 1854 into the Gilded Age aristocracy. And they had very um, sort of similar backgrounds in some ways. And one became the mother of uh, Winston Churchill and the other became the mother of Franklin Roosevelt. Why don't you write about them? And I thought, wow, (laughs) just as you said, you know, that's a huge subject. Wow. But I realized, you know, so much has been written about their sons, but they (laughs) themselves are fascinating women. And my first book, as I mentioned, was about the mother of William Lyon Mackenzie King, and I adored doing that book. So now I'm in hot pursuit of doing an intertwined narrative about Sarah Delano Roosevelt and Jenny Jerome Churchill. But of course, I am at the moment incredibly frustrated by the fact that I cannot go anywhere to do the research. I can't go to Hyde Park where the Roosevelt Library is. I can't go to London. Oh, yes and to um, all the different Churchill homes, the Marlborough House. I'm just hoping that vaccine comes soon. Yes. Oh, how frustrating. You have to spend time watching uh, The Crown, perhaps, <laughs> over well, I, and over I, again. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of goes on of that, but I might be yeah. doing that anyway. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that's really exciting. Like, Did their lives actually cross over until yes, like, before their sons were? Yeah. They did. I mean, I don't have, I have accounts by each of them of the same event. So in two occasions. So they must have both been there at the same time, although they never, and I know that their families knew each other, but I don't have in their own words, you know, I saw Jenny saying I saw Sarah or anything like that, because they were, they were in personality completely different. They, they would never have been friends. Okay. Well, what a fascinating craft exercise for you to braid those two narratives together. 
It is actually. It's um I'm enjoying it. Well, I'm very excited. Do you have like assuming that you are able to research soon, do you have a release date planned? No, I don't. No, because it really depends. I I I would never be able to finish it um without going to to the archives in yeah. each case. So, Charlotte, you have some writing tips for us. I do. I've jotted down five. They are probably incredibly obvious. It's just that sometimes they're hard to achieve. Uh, But my first writing tip is the classic, keep your bum on the chair. In order to write, you have to discipline yourself to keep your bum on the chair and get the sucker on the screen. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have to keep writing even when it looks awful, um, because if you let yourself stop and be too easily distracted, you'll never finish the project. My second writing tip is create a proper writing space. I know that Agatha Christie managed to write all her books at the corner of the kitchen table, but that's beyond most of us. You need a proper writing space, which is yours. If you're really lucky, it's a room where you can shut the door. This is incredibly important if you have small children, that you have a dedicated room of your own, in the words of Virginia Woolf, where you you own the space. My third writing tip is start drafting early. Never leave all the writing to the end of uh, the process after you've done the most fascinating and fun part of any project, which is the research, because you'll never finish the research. Uh, There are so many highways and byways to explore, and you have to impose some kind of discipline on that. So start writing as soon as possible when you're working on a project. Another tip I find, a technique to help with writer's block, which does happen to us all. You just can't find your way into a story, or you just don't know where to start, or you think, oh, this is so bland, is get up and leave your desk and go and find somebody to talk to, uh, to who you can say, I'm trying to write this section about what happened when Alexander Graham Bell couldn't actually uh, get his experiments to work. And my problem is, I don't know how to commit. Anyway, you, you rabbit on about sort of what the problem is. And if you have a really wonderful uh, interlocutor, my husband is always very good because he doesn't even lift his eyes from the newspaper. He just says, why? And what then? You know, he'll say, but sort of, so what was the problem? And uh, go on. And then what happened? And by talking, often you'll talk your way into a solution. The other thing, uh, method I have tried often is to write a letter, to sit and sort of abandon the document I'm working on on my laptop and open a new one and write to my brother in England, dear Nick, I'm actually trying to write a chapter right now about this. It's not going very well because the problems are. And then I start writing it and uh, write the, writing the chapter. And then by the time I've sort of worked it all through, I can actually cut and paste some of that material into uh, the abandoned document. Another tip for the kind of social history that I like doing is use photos. Rely on archival photos. What did people look like? How were they dressed? What are their expressions? What can you tell about the way that people are standing together? Are they holding hands? Are they keeping a cool distance from each other? Are the buildings 
overwhelming the individuals. Uh, photos are a most fantastic resource. Well, thank you. That's fantastic. They're all they're all very common sense tips, and yet I think most of us wouldn't think of them. <laughs> and so it's so nice to have them all just in one place. Like, of course, I should do all of those things. And now I feel like much more inspired and motivated to get back to writing. So thank you. That was fantastic. Oh, well, I hope so. That's nice to know if they are helpful. Well, it was lovely talking to you. Uh, as as I said, you know, I, I met you when I was uh, a student, but it was ever so brief. So it was really nice to get into some of the more, um, you know, the finer details of, of your process. And, and I learned a lot. So thank you so much. Well, Gillian, it's lovely to talk to you. And thank you again for inviting me to do this because uh, you ask good questions. And uh, it makes me reflect on my craft. And particularly because, you know, I've learned by doing, as most writers do. Uh, so it's a, a luxury to be able to actually think, well, how do you achieve that kind of impact or that kind of effect? It is, yeah. And it's one of my favorite things to talk about. So it's wonderful for me, too. I feel like a real fangirl in these conversations, for sure. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again, hopefully soon. That sounds great. If you're interested in writing nonfiction, the University of King's College MFA in Creative Nonfiction might be for you. Find out more at ukings.ca slash MFA. And if you'd like to hear more book-related conversations, check out Bookings, the podcast of our friends at the King's Co-op Bookstore. That's it for today's show. Thanks to Charlotte Gray for talking to us. Her latest book, Murdered Midas, A Millionaire, His Gold Mine, and A Strange Death on an Island Paradise, is available from HarperCollins. Further reading is produced by the University of King's College MFA program in creative nonfiction. Our editors are Kirsten DePina and Samantha Hepperly. Music by Pete Johnston. Graphics by Mike Smith. I'm your host, Gillian Turnbull. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.